Looking to stand out from the pack at your first job? When you earn a master's in management from Georgetown, you'll gain the skills employers value most, elevating your career prospects for years to come. Get started at choosegeorgetown.com slash MIM. Hi there. We're back with another edition of the Smart Driving Cars podcast. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with the faculty chair of autonomous vehicle engineering at Princeton University, Alan Kornhauser. Hi, Alan. Hi, Fred. Hi. And we are happy to welcome back Michael Senna, an internationally recognized expert in vehicle connectivity, location-based services, and navigation. He's based in Sweden and publishes the Dispatcher newsletter. Thanks for joining us again, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here again. We've really enjoyed digesting the latest edition of the Dispatcher. You take us back 52 years when a then 31-year-old Ralph Nader Princeton class of 55, Alan, yep, became known to the world with a book called Unsafe at Any Speed. Michael, tell us why you featured Nader and the book now in 2017. Well, when I, uh, when I entered Princeton in my freshman year in 1965, uh, his book was not very well known. It took, uh, took a few, few semesters before we got into, uh, to his book in my architecture and, and political political science classes. Um, and I revisited it just uh, a few months ago because it seemed to um, it seemed to be very topical. Uh, everyone was that uh, including myself who's been writing about it driverless cars has been talking about how it's uh, humans that have been causing accidents. But uh, back in in the early 1960s, when I got my driver's license, I I do recall that the cars were not quite what they are today in terms of safety. And uh, Ernie Kovacs was one of my f- TV favorites. In fact, the whole family used to love watching his his uh, his TV show. So I, I revisited it, the uh, the book and the history and the evolution of, of safety in our cars, and we certainly have come an awful long way. And I think uh, we we owe a lot of that to uh, to Ralph Nader. Absolutely. And we're really on the cusp of of using some of this technology that we always talk about to to make cars much 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 more safe. Well, I think. Uh, to make another incremental step, a major step that was made during the, the, uh, the 70s and early 80s when, when I've got two images in my car, uh, one showing a, a 1959 Chevy Bel Air and what it looks like when it, with a, when a head-on collision, and then a 2009 Chevy Malibu where the, the driver's, the driver's, uh, Enclosure is is completely unharmed with the same kind of a crash. So I think uh, I think the next step is going to have to be pretty incredible if, if we're going to be able to save as many lives as have been saved during these last uh, sixty years. Which is we've, we've halved the number of lives that have, that were uh, being lost to uh, traffic accidents in the United States from over sixty thousand to uh, close to thirty thousand. Yeah, within some. Go ahead, Alan. Um, with a lot more vehicle miles being traveled also. And, uh, and so in fact, uh, you know, the crash mitigation, 
efforts of uh, NHTSA and, and everybody else uh, certainly uh, is to be applauded, uh, and um, and we do, I think. Uh, but the the next stage is really to uh, to uh, avoid the accident in the first place. And in in a sense, uh, one of my um, beefs these days it has to do with with safe driving cars and automated emergency braking uh automated emergency braking is designed uh only to operate after we get a warning and in some sense after we we uh, start applying the brakes if we don't apply them uh, hard enough and uh, and then uh, really uh, after all is lost essentially uh, start applying the brakes and not in enough time to uh, to uh to cause a crash to not occur but really to mitigate it and most unfortunately, at least uh, I think we need to, to do a heck of a lot better job of that. And in some sense, um, uh, not wait for the driver to apply the brakes because the driver may not be paying attention and probably isn't. And the warning uh, has gotten so many of them that is it because of, of all the CYA that's going on that doesn't pay attention to them. The darn thing, if it thinks that the brakes should be applied, they should be applying the brakes, and we should design them well enough so that they do that. And we're not doing that yet, and that's really unfortunate. There, there are some car makers, uh, though, that, that that are really highlighting that technology in their advertising. They making are. Making that a big selling point. They are, but but uh, I, one has to really wonder whether or not the technology works. And it's and unfortunately, the you know too much of the design mentality I think has been has been that, that the driver is still king in the car, and and therefore, uh, my goodness, uh, unless it's it's uh, all hell's breaking loose, uh, don't do anything except for maybe you know be a backseat driver, and we know about, all about uh, you know your doors ajar. Uh, uh, attempts by Chrysler, you know, 20 years ago. And and so, in a sense, the systems need to be good enough. And, and of course, everybody's afraid of the false alarms, as they should be. And the only way to deal with the false alarms is to not have them. And in other words, make the darn things good enough. So we can put enough intelligence in the darn vehicle, I think, or we should get to the point where we put enough intelligence in the vehicle such that, in fact, the vehicle knows the right thing to do and let the vehicle do it if we're not doing it, and, but, but not to wait for us. But, Alan, I, you've, you've said this many, many times, and I do agree with you that, that automatic emergency braking is, is absolutely something that we should have in our cars. But the fact is that we don't have the systems at a level today where it works, and there's no That's point true. in rushing it. But, there's, but the, you know, there's no, there's no point in rushing it or there's no point in, in criticizing the car companies to say that you're not putting it in your cars. I know for a fact, because I'm working with three of them right now, they're working very hard to develop the systems to be able to work when they should work. But the, the, the systems just aren't there. I, I agree. I, I agree. And I think, but they, but what I'm trying to do is encourage them to continue to do that and not make it seem as if, oh my goodness, that's just, you know, we're by that point. All that stuff works. Let's go on and, and do all the other crazy stuff that they, they're, they're trying to do. Yeah. I, I mean, we need to, I think, need to take a step backwards. 
is is in some sense what I'm trying to say. I don't know, Michael. Talk to me. Yeah, yeah I, I think the car companies, the car companies are talking out of two sides of them about simultaneously. On the one hand, they know they're in really major trouble because their valuations are are in a, in a putting them in a position which where they're really at risk. They're at risk, of, not necessarily at risk of, of going out of business because people are still buying cars, but they're being they're at risk of not being able to have the money to do what they need to do because their stock values are so low. So they need to talk their their companies up to the to the the financial markets so that they can maintain the, the development investments that are necessary. So that's one side, and all of the things that they're doing right now with driverless cars with with primarily with driverless cars is really a lot of hot air because they know they can't do this for quite a long time. On the other side, they're working extremely hard because they know that their competitive their competitive com competitive advantage is going to be based on how well they implement safety systems, advanced driver assistance systems, which include the driver, which provide the driver with with all of the, the necessary tools to be able to drive better. And they're working really, really hard. But the, 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 the kinds of sensors that they need are, are very expensive right now, and, and they're trying their best to bring the cost of these down by inventing new ways of doing things. But it takes time. So they're, they're buying time by saying one thing in order to be able to do what they need to do in the next five, five to ten years to make cars much more safe and much more environment, environmentally um, uh, attractive uh, to be able to stay in business. Well, yeah, I agree. I, I think the, you know, the other thing that sort of torments me is, is I watch uh, car advertising on TV. I mean, the, the amount of 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 um, of misuse of the automobile that that car companies use to try to sell their their vehicles. It's just, it's in some sense appalling. You know, essentially, uh, almost, it must be that almost every uh, car ad is done in a closed course because, uh, because if people were behaving like that on open roads, it would be like, it's totally irresponsible. And, and as you say, you know, that, you know, they, they seem to have to do that because they've got to sell cars and they yep. think that this sells cars. But in a sense, you know, that maybe can't we just step back, take a deep breath and, and be real? Or I guess maybe we can't. Maybe that's uh, that's why I'm in academia and you're out there working. <laughs> we can't. We can't. I mean, there's, we, there's enough examples of, of, of what companies do in order to to ensure that the, their products are in front of people and that people buy their products. I mean, there's no reason on, on this this earth why one person buys a Mercedes and another person buys a Fiat, except that somebody can afford a Mercedes and he can't afford anything else other than a Fiat. I mean, in terms of the, of the car's capabilities, um, I mean, you're paying an awful lot of money for that Mercedes, but you're getting a lot for it as well. If you can't afford it, what do you do? You buy a second-hand car, and the and the, the the less money you have, the older the car is going to get. And I, I think it's I think it's it's a very very tough market for people who are in the car business today. They're selling against 
they're trying to sell cars that are basically the same if it's if it's a new car and they're competing against other cars which are much less expensive because people don't have the money to afford it. And it's a tough business and the margins are for the mass market the margins are below five percent, which is peanuts. Well, people are also holding on to their cars for a much longer period of time, too, and that certainly hasn't helped the industry. Yeah. Well, I remember when I, when I was growing up, my, my father bought one new car. It was a 1960 Dodge Dart. And the reason he bought that car was that he had lost his job, and after a year of being unemployed, he was, he was offered a job working in the Chrysler Tank Division as a draftsman. He was a, he was a commercial artist, and he had worked 25 years as a, as a commercial artist for a Lace curtain design firm company, large Scranton Lace. And he worked for the Scranton Lace. Actually, he worked for more than 25 years. But so he took this job, and he he was one of these really loyal. You know, whatever whatever company did the right thing, he bought their their product, and so he now is employed by the Chrysler Tank Division, and he's going to buy a Chrysler product. And he bought this wonderful car, the Dodge Dart in sky blue. It was the only car on the on the lot that, that was at least you know, met, met most of his requirements, which was that it had to be a pretty low price. Um, these were great, weren't they? <laughs> oh, fantastic. I mean, but, but you know, after he owned that car for two years, and once he brought it into his, his, his shop the, just for a tune-up, and I remember I was with him when, when this happened. This was, 19, I think, 1962. And... Um, he drove the car, he got in the car, turned it on, and started to drive it out of the lot. I don't know if you know anything about Dodge Darts in 1960. This was a V8. This is plus 200 horsepower, and they had tuned this thing like a, like a, like a stock car. And after about a, a minute of trying to get the car under control, it's like a, you know, it's like a horse that was just bucking all over the place. He brought it back in, and he said, I don't know what you did to this car, but turn it back. <laughs> <laughs> Great story. Those were the days, Alan. So, so something else, Alan, that was in your uh, latest newsletter, the Smart Driving Cars newsletter, is uh, the biggest car insurance company in the UK is offering a discount to customers who use Tesla Autopilot, and this is to help it collect data. What, what are your thoughts about what they're doing there? Well, I think it's more than collect data. I mean, if there's one thing that was determined uh, from the um, uh, investigation of the Tesla crash in Florida was that they got the, the Tesla released uh, the information so that someone could go out there and determine what the crash history has been of the uh, Teslas with autopilot versus without autopilot and the the important data point was that Tesla's with autopilot uh, crash basically 40 percent uh, uh, less than than Tesla's uh, without autopilot, and so uh, I guess one's taken that that data point and said, "Oh my goodness, if that's true, then 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 expected loss uh, for an insurance company should be lower." I mean, one of the problems with with uh, uh, safety that's associated with crash mitigation is that yes, people don't die and and uh, in those crashes, 
but uh, the insurance loss goes up because there's, in some sense, more damage that's caused to more expensive vehicles to replace airbags and so on and so forth. And the, the thing that nobody wants to talk about is that it's, uh, for an insurance company, it's more expensive if you live than if you die. So, you know, um, if now um, one is uh, so that the past history with crash mitigation that kept people from dying, actually, uh, the loss part of insurance, you know, what has had to be paid out has actually gone up. So that, in fact, um, that's why insurance, or at least that's what's why some in insurance are leery about you know, safety and, and equating safety with uh, with lower insurance premiums. But if you then don't have a crash at all, then loss, I mean, then loss should go down because there's no lawyer, there's no ambulance, there's no whatever. And so I think they're just, um, they're anticipating that they can say whatever they want, but I think they're anticipating that the, uh, that their loss, his, uh, their, their future loss associated with, uh, with Teslas that have autopilot um, can be expected to be substantially lower. So they're giving a, I don't know, 5% discount, not very much, but at least they're giving something. And so I think it's a, it could be a real win-win. And, and I, you know, I think more insurance companies should do that with more of the products that that do work and if they if they work so that they they avoid the crash as opposed to just mitigating it then in fact that should be money on the table for insurance to say i i can invest in that and it should be a real incentive for auto companies to say my goodness uh there's at least uh, one buyer out there for this technology and 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 uh, that's the insurance companies you know, maybe we don't, we all think we're safe drivers. So in some sense, you know, we don't buy safety because we already think we're safe. Uh, but, um, but an insurance companies out there, you know, it's just, uh, it's just money on the table. And so I don't know. Uh, it's what I, I think that's a really interesting element. I have, uh, I've worked for, uh, someone that Alan, Alan knows. He, we, I introduced him to uh, Jacques Amselin last year, attended the conference that yeah. that Alan organized at, at uh, Princeton. And um, I've been working with, with him for the last 15 years and, and as a client for the last, or as a, as a consultant to him as a client for the last five years. We've talked a lot about, about insurance and, and um, the next issue of the, of the dispatcher is going to have a, a page on, uh, on insurance, um, it, automo automobile insurance, but insurance in general is a very, very. On the one hand, it's very difficult to even discuss it because the, the business model for insurance is, is unique. Um, um, and what what they're doing is they're buying they're buying risk. Yeah. And for the, I'm not sure how many Teslas are sold in the UK, uh, but it's it's not. It's certainly not close to fifteen hundred per year because that's the second most uh, purchased. It's the second that's Germany, and they buy fifteen hundred a year, and Norway buys four thousand a year. So the UK is 
maybe they sell a thousand cars a year, and of those thousand cars, maybe half of them have have the autopilot. Uh, and who knows what the what the motivation is for them to be offering a, a five percent discount on, on insurance to people who have uh, Teslas with autopilot. But we're not talking about a lot of cars. The whole point of of automobile insurance or the ins- automobile insurance right now is is going through a phase where it has to make some decisions about how it's going to be charging insurance in the future because there will be changes that are going to take place. They're not going to happen within the next five years, but insurance companies need to figure out something for the five to 15-year period after that, whether they're driverless cars or more more cars being leased uh, by companies and then people use them to uh, on, a, on a daily or, or weekly or yearly basis. We don't know that yet. But one thing is for certain, and it's the way that insurance is going to be charged in the future is not necessarily going to be the way it's charged today, which is based on the, on the, the sex, the, the, the age, although sex can't be used anymore in, in Europe, but the age, uh, where the car is, is garage, where it's used, how much it's used, what the value of the car is, all of those things are taken into account. One of the things that, that doesn't really affect the price of the, of the, of the insurance is how much, how many bells and whistles are in the car. And there's so many other things that affect the, the, the actuarial value of, of, of providing insurance for an individual that, that that issue is really not important. And, and as Alan has said, and, and correctly, the car companies haven't, sorry, the insurance companies haven't really given much thought to or credence to providing insurance less expensively for cars that are, are more, are, are safer or for people with, uh, with data. Um, they do lower the prices somewhat for people who have a good driving record because the price is too much because those people who do have good driving records don't. And those are people who are under 25, 26 years old, male usually, and people over 75 to 80 years old, and there are lots of them still driving. Um, it's. I'd love to have a you know, have a day with the insurance companies where we we actually talk about this. But whenever I've gone to conferences that are specifically related to car insurance, there are lots of people there trying to sell systems to the insurers, and and the insurers are just sitting there saying, "We can't tell you what our, how we really do our business because if we did, we'd have to shoot you." <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, and and it's. Yes, absolutely all those things, and and it will change. And as we know, what I guess it's Volvo that's even suggested that, my goodness, uh, uh, they'll self-insure uh, all their vehicles and they'll take the responsibility to them. And in some sense, they, uh, uh, an auto manufacturer who's who's providing a great deal of, of uh, intelligence in the vehicle so, suggesting that the vehicle is going to be the one that's going to be avoiding the crashes, uh, then in some sense um, uh, the product liability associated with that with that technology implies that the manufacturer is going to get dragged into any crash anyway. So why? Because they're the deeper pockets. So in some sense, uh, you know, self-insuring the the, the whole. Uh, vehicle is something that uh, they almost have to do uh, because they're going to have to do it anyway. So, you know, let's go back. Let's go back to where insurance started. 
if if the if the shippers in the in the eighteen middle of the eighteen hundreds or the or the early eighteen hundreds could actually self insure, there would be no insurance companies today. I have no faith in anyone, even even companies like Daimler, having the pockets that are deep enough to be an insurer. To be in a position of, of having the money to be in the insurance business is not something that you do overnight. And all companies like Progressive, which have sort of popped up, which are which really aren't very profitable in any case, they depend on being in the business for, for underwriters. And companies like Allianz and State Farm and even even AAA, um, these are companies that have amassed enormous amounts of money and have invested that money, that's their business, in order to make sure that they can provide the, 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 the coverage for something that at some point could be catastrophic. But in the meantime, you know, they've got a lot of money tied up and they're giving, it's, as mutuals, they're, they're, they're distributing it in one way and as, as private companies, they're distributing it in another way. But the whole business model of insurance companies is so totally different from the business model of any manufacturing company, especially absolutely. a little company like Volvo. Yeah, absolutely. And then Volvo, I mean, uh, when I say self-insured, in fact, what they're going to have to do is go, they're going to have to go out and provide and, and purchase reinsurance or insurance themselves that basically allows them to distribute uh, their uh, exposure with a lot of other folks. So in a sense, it, 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 it's, it, 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 yes, it is non-trivial. <laughs> Let me get into a couple of other headlines before we wrap it up. Uh, Ford is promising to deliver a new strategy and design for autonomous vehicles in the coming year. Uh, the company's president of Global Markets, Jim Farley, wrote in the Medium that uh, Ford will prioritize the movement of people and goods. Now, they have a partnership with Lyft, Michael. Uh, in the dispatcher, you point out that uh, that partnership prompted a split between Lyft and GM. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, 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 it, it, whether it did or didn't, I, I mean, that's it's speculation, I think, on, on my part. But I, if you were putting all of your... If you're investing in a company um, like GM was working with Lyft, and uh, Lyft says, "Well, you know, you're you're only one of many. I need to, to spread my, my my eggs around in different baskets." And if I were GM, I'd do the same thing. I mean, they they have focused a lot and given a lot of money to Lyft, and I, I think uh, you know they they were. I think they were looking for Lyft to be much more of a be something that was going to make money with other companies. I don't know what prompted Lyft to uh, to do that. I mean, it seemed like they they did have a golden goose, but uh, uh, maybe they had maybe they had good reasons. But I, I think it was a it was a move that was obviously not going to sit well with uh, with General Motors. While we're while we're talking about Lyft, its its first self driving car pilot is now officially underway in Boston, uh, using vehicles developed by Newtonomy. Uh, there are still attendants in the cars, so. And Alan, uh, they're not completely driverless. No surprise there. No surprise. I mean, there's still attendance in the cars, and and there will be attendance in the cars for a while. And and in the latest uh, smart driving cars, there's even a startup out in uh, uh, that's uh, that's come out out in uh, in Silicon Valley in Mountain View that basically is uh, is is providing remote. Uh, uh, assistance service 
to these uh, to these vehicles, uh, which even when you take the attendant out, uh, they'll all uh, and put telemetry in those vehicles. And instead of having an attendant in the vehicle, there'll be an attendant in some, uh, you know, command center somewhere uh, who uh, who's uh, overseeing the darn thing. And, and that's probably going to happen for a very, very long time uh, and, and should happen. I mean, um, um, whoever puts uh, driverless vehicles out there is going to be responsible and for them to be responsible, uh, because they're responsible, they hope that they're never responsible for anything. So, therefore, that nothing bad ever happens. And so they'll do everything they can to uh, try to keep thing, bad things from happening. And so right now, it's, of course, you have a, a human in there ready to take over in case uh, something happens, uh, rip open and become superwoman and do it. Uh, but uh, at some point, the economics of that uh, is, 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 it's certainly um, uh, not scalable. So you can, you can only do that in the test. You can't do that as a real business. So you can't have $60 billion valuations and have attendance in your uh, self-driving cars. So at some point, um, that has to, they, those folks have to be removed. And, uh, of course, the halfway house of that removal is to have uh, folks in some in some command center someplace uh, looking over and, and maybe, uh, you know, not looking over one, but looking over two or four or eight or 16 or 32 or, you know, 10, 20, uh, 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 10, whatever, and so on and so forth. And uh, we'll wait and see. You know, well, as we said last week, but Waymo is saying it's, it's coming soon. It looks like Lyft and Uber will be getting more competition. Uh, Didi, the big ride-hailing service in China, is planning to start operating in Mexico in the coming year. This year, they opened a research and development center in Mountain View, California, where they're working on self-driving car technology. So we'll see yeah, what so happens there. Of that center in Mountain View, it was a very uh, interesting affair. DD is a serious competitor. They're, you know, they're off, they're delivering 20 million rides a day uh, with uh, gig workers, and you know, mostly in, in in China. But you know, 20 million is is a pretty big number. Although they should be doing. Uh, uh, 200 million a day, if not 2 billion a day, if they're really going to be more than, um, you know, just uh, less than a 1% impact on the mobility of, of society. So um, we need to go several orders of magnitude up in scale to um, to get it to be more than just uh, um, uh, a very, very niche market. Do you expect to see them uh, become a household word like Uber and Lyft? Well, they are in China. I mean, here. Whether, whether or not Didi enters the United States, I don't know. I mean, I think uh, uh, that's a whole different thing. We saw that Uber wasn't able to enter enter China, and uh, their they're, they're, localization is important. And so, in a sense, um, um, you know, uh, country-based operations, I think, are probably gone, going to dominate as opposed to having one world dominant entity. 
Michael, thoughts? Yeah, I, as you, if you've been following the dispatcher from the time I started with it until the time, I, I, I don't see much future for a company like Uber, and I certainly don't see the, the business model that they have of being able to turn it around instead of 20% to Uber and 80% to the driver of 80% to, the, to Uber and 20% to whoever. Um, it's, it's just not, it, it's just not something that's going to be, um, that's going to work in my estimation. I mean, we've seen Uber's valuation now is being questioned. Uh, SoftBank has come back and said, yes, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to pay that price. We don't think it's close to the valuation that you have of 60 or close to 70. We think it's closer to 48. And I think a year from now, it might be half of that or Uber not, might not be around at all. I just have a very different view on, on, you know, what these companies are, are offering. And I, you know, it's, they're taxi companies. They're not ride hailing companies. They're taxi companies. And sooner or later, there's going to be a, a, a major move to, to, to do what these companies are doing on a, on an international scale. And I don't think they're going to be around. Very interesting. That's it for this edition of the Smart Driving Cars podcast. We want to thank Michael Senna for joining us. He's at michaelsenna.com. Find us at smartdrivingcar.com on SoundCloud and look for my tech reports at textination.com. I'm Fred Fishkin along with Alan Kornhauser. Thanks for listening. The all-new Toyota RAV4 asks, what if? What if your ride was refined and rugged at the same time? Introducing a car that's got style and substance to spare. The all-new RAV4 Limited, featuring a sophisticated, muscular new exterior and available options like a premium JBL audio system and panoramic roof. The all-new RAV4 Limited. Toyota, let's go places. JBL and Clarifier, registered trademarks of Harman International Industries Incorporated.